in the assembly that we have before us tonight, the enjoyment that we have, we've already been able to experience the grandness of association not only with one another, but to in fact enter into the sublime presence of the God of heaven. Perhaps to our mind might well come the words of the psalmist in Psalm 27, perhaps one of the most poetic of all the words and verses in that wonderful chapter, verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, one thing shall I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing. Tonight as we have the opportunity to thinking about the nature of the Word of the Lord, we might well note that we will turn our attention to a very intriguing scene found in the heart of the Old Testament, namely the instance of the budding of Aaron's rod. You might well wonder as we contemplate matters like that one, and as we often study and read from a nature of the Old Testament, may we remind ourselves that those principles and those things contained therein, not as though they form the nature of the Christian law today, they are our schoolmaster, our tutor to bring us to Christ. There are eternal principles contained therein. Tonight we will address one of the timeless principles of the Old Testament, founded in fact restated many times in the New. It has to do with something that God made evident at the scene of the budding of Aaron's rod. As Lucas read for us a moment ago from the 17th chapter of the book of Numbers, it will be from that chapter that we will consider a portion of our text tonight. I'd ask you to turn there with me. After we have some introductory comments to form the setting for that chapter, we will in fact extract some principles found not only in verse 10, but in many other verses of that chapter, and those we will learn time and again as we will even visit them in the New Testament. By way of an introduction then, would you consider with me some of the features of the setting as it relates to this very matter? Authority. Authority is very important throughout the character of the Bible. Needless to say, it's extremely important in the mind and will of God. In fact, it is seen in so many ways and in so many environments. For example, in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22, we see God's plan for authority vested in the home. Husbands, submit yourselves to your wives, as well as children submitting themselves to the parents. But not only the family. Notice with me also in the church, God had a plan regarding authority. Hebrews 13, 17, you and I are to obey those elders that are over us. And was it not true in Philippians 1 verse 1 that Paul addressed the elders as well as, the, as those that were the deacons in that church in Philippi? But not only in the home and not only in the church, consider with me the fact that even the civil order of government, God had a plan regarding authority. Peter addressed that matter, did he not, in 1 Peter 2? In fact, a lengthy discussion, but at one point he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, to kings and to those that are in authority. And even as he made that proclamation, we recognize today, even as God often revealed, they are supposed to be those that punish the evildoers and uphold that which is at least morally good. Sometimes they stray from that edict, but we notice that still that command given in Peter was the same. Maybe one final comment regarding the authority that we investigate in the Holy Scriptures. Wasn't it true that even to the Corinthians the inspired apostle made note of an absolute authority that could never be questioned, never set aside? 
the order he stated, he began by noting the head of the woman is the man. The head of the man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. And that fundamental order was used to describe the character of what was revealed in the next three chapters in that book. And it is in fact that very character that still has never been set aside by order of heaven, authority. There can be no question it had an important role to play because God mentioned it so often. However, man has not always looked favorably upon authority. Isn't it true that on many occasions we much prefer not to be told to remain within our given God, God-given sphere? In fact, tonight, as we revisit this intriguing scene in the Old Testament, we will find that was the very problem then. And it's one with which God dealt severely. It's one with which God dealt directly. And needless to say, it is one which still creeps up quite often in the world in which you and I live today. The subject of authority. Notice then with me the setting as we come to this text in Numbers chapter 17. That will do us well to remember the placing of this chapter. And so let's take a brief journey, remembering what brought ancient Israel to this point. They, of course, had been brought out of Egyptian captivity, and that had happened by virtue of the mighty hand of God as he rained ten plagues upon the Egyptians. Ultimately and finally, the Egyptians seemed happy for them to leave, but they soon changed their mind and chased them to the Red Sea, if you will. But one final means exemplified God's power of deliverance, for he parted that Red Sea and his own people passed through on dry land. But in the aftermath thereof, the Egyptians were drowned. Immediately in the aftermath of that scene, we began to see the wandering of that people as they pushed onward toward that land of promise, that land of Canaan. All the while, they frequently saw the power of God as he rained manna for them to eat and quail in ultimate provision. Furthermore, he brought water from a rock and on other occasions, trees were cast into lakes and it made the water such that they could drink it. As they observed and witnessed all of this, they readily came to appreciate that God had a plan for the power and authority amongst Israel. There were twelve tribes, that's true. But the tribe of Levi had been selected as the one that would be the one that should take care of the tabernacle, the one from whom the priests were to come, the one that was in fact not to have a land inheritance, but rather their inheritance was the service to God Almighty. All the while were those statements made. It's nonetheless amazing that the children of Israel were often overcome by unbelief. I've listed in particular that unforgettable scene in Numbers 14 and 15. Their spies had been sent out by decree of Moses. As they came back, ten of them said, We cannot take this land. It in fact is a land flowing with milk and honey, and it is a land of abundance. It is the land that we have been told about. However, amongst the number but two, namely Joshua and Caleb, affirmed this is it and by the power of God let us rise up at once and take it. Because of their unbelief, they were to wander for 38 more years in that wilderness. They were to wander for 38 long and perhaps excruciating years until all aged 20 and older would die in that wilderness. Unbelief. Can we not see the authority then vested in Moses and in Aaron? 
as far back as the scene of the burning bush, God had selected Moses to be the leader of this people. In fact, to Moses, God said, bring my people out of Egypt. Furthermore, Aaron was his spokesman, if you will, the one whom God also had chosen and selected. And he was, in fact, the initial high priest, Exodus 28. These two were the ones that God had selected to be the leaders. These were the ones God had chosen to provide the leadership. And oh, how vital that leadership was. In Numbers 14.4, when the children of Israel said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? We'd have been better off if you'd left us there. It took the steadying but often frustrating hand of Moses to inform them of what God had said. And Moses was to be that steadying guide that would lead them on by the power of God to the land of Canaan. That places all the more emphasis then on the scenes of number 16. In the very state chapter that follows the one we just mentioned, we find here that three individuals rose up with an interesting comment. Their names will forever live in infamy, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. As these three rose up led by Korah, their claim and their proclamation to Moses and Aaron was this, you take too much on yourselves, all the congregation are holy. Let all of us serve in the tabernacle and in other ways before God. These three couldn't understand why it was Moses and Aaron that were especially the chosen leaders of Israel. They thought they needed to be just as much a leader. The frustration again appears. As we see Moses fall before the Lord and plead for God's guidance and his aid in number 16. However, Moses does rise and inform them, Tomorrow God will make clear as to who he wants to lead Israel. Tomorrow God will set the record straight as to who will in fact be his selected and chosen leaders. Who will be his authority. All of that we find in the opening verses of number 16. And thus as the chapter proceeds, we are ready to see then that at beginning in verse 27, on the next day, the whole congregation had come together. All of Israel, numbering perhaps into the early millions, were present to watch what would be done when God made his will known. The first thing Moses said to the congregation was, separate yourselves from Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and their number. A separation was to be observed, and furthermore, what happened next will forever boggle our mind. God made it absolutely clear that his will was as follows. On the moment, on the spur of the moment, God cleaved this earth on which we walk, and it swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram alive, and their families and all that they owned. Was it not clear then the sentiment that God wished to express? His authority is not to be questioned, and his established authority on earth is not to be neglected and certainly not to be questioned. These three had had the audacity to question the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and as so much as they thought that they were worthy of leading Israel and that others were as well, God put a stop to this thought in a hurry. As this number thus lost their life, and as this number was removed from Israel, an eternal decree, then, of understanding the importance of God's established authority is present, and it's clear. As we then proceed the very thought of this which was then to occur, the story is not quite finished. That closes, indeed, chapter 16. 
But in the very next verse, in number 17, beginning in verse number 1, let me encourage you to read with me the extent of that chapter. It consists of only 13 verses, so it isn't extremely lengthy, but please read with me, for this is the chapter where Aaron's rod buds. Numbers chapter 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes according to the house of their fathers twelve rods. Write thou every man's name upon his rod. And thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom, and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece, for each prince one, according to their father's houses, even twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness, and it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded, and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord unto all the children of Israel, and they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels, and thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. And Moses did so as the Lord commanded him, so did he. And the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? Beginning in verse 1 of number 17. In the very next chapter, indeed, those rebels, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, had lost their life, but there were some amongst Israel who sided with them. They had the same viewpoint. They had the same particular thoughts and opinions. For the benefit of the entirety of the surviving children of Israel, we find God settling the matter in number 17. And, so, and thus he commanded that a rod was to be collected representative of every one of the twelve tribes of Israel. As those rods were brought together, the name of the tribe was to be written upon it. And notice in particular that for the tribe of Levi, Aaron's name was to be written upon it. As those rods then were gathered, they were to be placed in the tabernacle. That tabernacle commanded, of course, to be built and maintained. And in that tabernacle on the following day, God would per, per, per make happen the budding of that particular rod that was to be the one having religious authority. The one that was to have authority amongst the children of Israel. Which one of the twelve tribes would it be ultimately and once and for all? Can you imagine the excitement and perhaps the anticipation of the individuals as they gathered and waited? As Moses went into that tabernacle the next day, he found that of all the twelve rods that were there present, one of them had budded. Furthermore, it had blossomed and in full bloom it even brought forth almonds. And the name of the one upon that rod was Aaron. It was the tribe of Levi. 
that was to be the one, and God had therein stated that his authority religiously would rest with them. Can we not then see that in the aftermath of that event, Moses brought the rods out, all twelve of them, to show to them once and for all God's decree on this subject. Never again should a difficulty like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram happen. Never again amongst Israel should someone claim to themselves authority which they did not have. For forever they were to remember the budding of Aaron's rod. In fact, in that Ark of the Covenant, one of the elements that was placed therein, one of the artifacts placed therein was to be a reminder of this event, and it was none other than the rod of Aaron that budded. What do we learn then in terms of lessons that you and I may extract and apply today from the budding of Aaron's rod? Might I submit to you that when we think about some of these, let us list just a few of them and use this text to help us appreciate them more fully. In terms of authority, our first lesson is this, that authority in the name of religion is extremely important. In fact, we hinted at that early on in the lesson this evening, did we not? But oh, how abundantly we have seen it presented by the budding of Aaron's rod and the tragedy, if you will, that occurred regarding Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. The authority that God has vested in religion is exceedingly significant and he expects it to be respected. In fact, in terms of the Old Testament, even our Savior, when he walked this earth, paid great respect to the Old Testament law of Moses, for that's the law under which he lived. Never once did he violate it. In fact, our Savior walked the entirety of his life upon this earth, and never did he sin. Never did he violate that law of Moses under which he lived. In Luke 17, verse 14, on that memorable occasion when several lepers were healed, that's the very occasion when you might recall that one came back to express thanks unto God and to Christ for doing that. But notice that in the act of his healing of them, Jesus told them, Go and show yourself to the priest. The very thing commanded in the book of Leviticus. That's what they were commanded by authority of God to do under the law of Moses. The Lord did not set that aside. He did not usurp that as though the law of Moses was insignificant and unimportant. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Thus, we notice that even our Savior had respect to the very law revealed by God. Here we notice that the budding of Aaron's rod emphasized that importance in religion to us. The very thought, then, of the significance of authority is even seen, oddly enough, in an interesting question asked by several religious leaders in Acts 4, verse 7. On that occasion, Peter and John had been arrested. In fact, in the events that started when they healed the lame man there at Solomon's porch in Acts 3. But after they were arrested and in prison, the authorities, when they questioned them, said, By what authority or by what name have you done this? The civil authorities and those religious authorities understood these men needed authority to do what they did. They asked them where they get that authority. That's that very occasion when Peter began to preach one of the most bold sermons perhaps he ever spoke. 
On Pentecost, it's true, he had been bold and mighty, but what he told them, he said, there is a chief cornerstone that you have neglected, the chief cornerstone that you have not built upon. That chief cornerstone from Isaiah 28:16 is none other than Christ. Peter had the boldness then to inform them of that authority that he used to act. The importance of authority is so amazing and mighty helps us realize that when there is no authority, or when that authority is not respected, it leads to chaos and anarchy and problems on every hand. And has it not ever been so? In Judges 17.6, what happened when ancient Israel did not respect their authority? Is that not the very case and in the very text where we read that every man did that which was right in his own eyes, for there was no king in Israel? Whenever a man does that which is right in his own eyes, that cannot be good for anybody. It wasn't good for ancient Israel. The tragedy and terrible moral condition of the land described in Judges 17 through 21 challenges us time and again to understand that there is an authority and it must be respected. Not only in that case, but consider yet another. In 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 28, that interesting occasion when there the, the rebel was none other than Jeroboam. What happened when he decided that Israel needed not to go back and worship at Jerusalem? When he decided Israel needed not to go and worship at the temple there? He decided to construct his own places of worship, one at Dan and one at Bethel. And forever thereafter he is called the one that made Israel to sin. 1 Kings 15, verses 28 and following. Thus we see that it is not a pretty picture when man rebels against God's authority. And thus our first lesson, that authority is very important and it is to be respected. But consider yet a second lesson as well. Rebellion to established authority is worthy of punishment. Rebellion to established authority is worthy to be punished. We have already seen what happened to Korah, to Dathan, and to Abiram. Their lives were lost, and they were thus a sign to Israel of God's punishment upon those who were rebels. Notice here in the scene of the budding of Aaron's rod. We notice that the congregation being gathered, Moses brought those rods out. Each one took his own, but only one of them had budded. God's answer was abundantly plain. God's answer was absolutely clear. In that statement, he affirmed that it was to be Levi and no other. We understand that Moses and Aaron both were of the tribe of Levi, and all the high priests were to be the descendants of Aaron. In the mind of God, there were to be no exceptions. We notice then that as God had made that statement, that perhaps challenges us to ask, what about today? Now we understand that God doesn't work in exactly the same way by performing spur-of-the-moment miracles, maybe like he did then. He may not open the earth and swallow alive those that rebel against his authority. But just as surely in the New Testament he does promise that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of accounting in which everyone shall give account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. There is a day when each one shall receive the deeds of the body, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, when the works of men's hands will be made manifest, Revelation 22, 12. 
as all of that is made known, what does that say about those such as Diotrephes in 3 John 9? Here was a very one who acted not unlike those in Numbers 16 and 17. Diotrephes, it says, loved to have the preeminence among them. He lifted himself up as being some great one. He even cast brethren out of the church. When that authority did not rest with him, John made it known, I will deal with him when I come. 3 John 10 and 11. We see then that God still is going to punish those that rebel, those who do not subscribe to the authority that he has vested in the revelation of his will. But in addition to Diotrephes, consider with me Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4. In fact, as the inspired apostle Paul drew near to the close of the last letter he ever wrote, he made mention of some who had departed from him, such as Demas. But here in verse 15 of that closing chapter, he made reference to a man named Alexander the coppersmith who, he said, has done me much evil. But yet Paul did not respond in vengeance. Apparently, this man named Alexander had lifted up and in fact opposed in an authoritative fashion the very nature of the inspired work of Paul. But as he had done that, Paul pleaded that it may not be laid to his charge. We see then the recognition that Paul understood that if things didn't change, this one would have to give answer for his rebellion to God. So much so that Paul was hopeful that he would come to his senses and thus return to a proper following and service unto the God of heaven. And thus in the second place again, rebellion to God's established authority will be punished. Oh, what a sore thing it would be to leave this earth in the very act of death in which then upon judgment we would fall into the hands of a consuming fire, namely our God being that consuming fire, as we read in the book of Hebrews. These things perhaps tell us there's yet another lesson. In addition to these two, we can learn from the budding of Abram's rod. Consider this one as well with me. Is it not then true in the very statement of what we've learned? This, in fact, is a corollary or a statement that follows directly from the two we've just seen. All do not have the right to do all the things in the name of religion. There are some things that God has commanded that are not to be done. There are certain ways in which things are to be accomplished, and if we pursue them in other ways, that still is not in accordance to His will. There are many examples that might well be given. Let me simply list one. We live in an age and in a time when political correctness seems to be the order of the day, isn't it? Men and women clamor after doing those things that more or less society applauds and approves, when all the while they seem to forget to pursue whether or not God approves of it. One of the movements that started now a couple of decades ago in that feminist movement of the 70s, that has now began to be far more prominent yet again. What about the ordination, for instance, or the consideration of females, of women, who teach, who preach, who lead singing? It is not in any way to cast an insult upon the fairer sex, upon the female. It is simply the matter that there's a hierarchy. There's an authority delivered by the entire will of God. You and I have not the authority to set that aside. We have not the authority to ignore it. 
There are many in our world today who have chosen to do that. They, in fact, uphold it as discrimination if we don't do it that way. But yet they simply do not look back to those texts such as 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the pressing character of 1 Corinthians 11 through 13, all of which challenge us again that those comments and those remarks, Paul never insulted the women. He simply affirmed that just as surely as men have a sphere of activity in which God has ordained them to work and they are not to go beyond it, so too there is a sphere of work for the ladies and they too are not to go beyond it. The spheres indeed are different, but that's the plan and the will of God. And thus he specifically stated in 1 Timothy 2 that I suffer not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man. Those weren't Randy's statements, or per se they weren't Paul's statements, for he received them by delivery from the revelation of heaven. He stated that fact in Galatians 1, verses 10 and 11. And thus, when we consider matters like that today, what are they saying about authority? They are ignoring the authority of God, usurping their own authority. What happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? They were sorely punished. Would it not be a frightful thing then to meet God in judgment and have him ask, what was your perspective on my text in 1 Timothy 2.11? Why didn't you do what I said? Will they have any good answer, really? I don't think so. God means what he says, and he says what he means, doesn't he? The lesson we then learn about the budding of Abram's rod is a timeless one in that authority, as it's established by God, is always to be respected, and that means that you and I, all of us, have a particular sphere in which we labor. There is a boundary and we must not go beyond it. We must not proceed in an attitude of arrogance to strive to take authority upon ourselves that God has never given us. And thus, as we make these comments, notice some of the things that Paul thus commented. Paul was a knowledgeable man when it came to the Old Testament. He was trained at the feet, if you will, of that noted Rabbi Gamaliel in Acts 22.3. He was one who said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. In Galatians 1, he could say, I have been promoted above those who were even my equals. But yet Paul could say, when he was addressing these matters of religion, never did he assert his will over God's. In the Roman letter, in Romans 4, verse 3, what three-word quest, three question did he ask? What saith the Scripture? That was Paul's final answer. Whatever the Scripture said was the way it had to be. And thus, that was the thing, the character that he affirmed. Can we not then see that authority has been vested in the Holy Scriptures? You and I must turn to it for the answers, and never must we go beyond it. Isn't it also true in that text that one might see in 2 Timothy 3? Paul there forever affirmed that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Scriptures then are those which contain the very inspired words of heaven and they are all sufficient. Perhaps one final lesson, though, that we may extract from this interesting scene back in number 17. It's at the bottom of that screen there on the wall to my left. 
Think about the marvelous and wonderful blessing when men do respect the authority of God. Think about the blessing that came upon Israel when they did respect God's authority and when they did pursue it. In Deuteronomy 28, in fact, there is a very lengthy chapter. We will not read the entirety of it. It consists of some 68 verses. The first 15 verses of that chapter state to ancient Israel the blessings that they would experience and receive when, when they respected God's authority and did what he said. Beginning in verse 15, continuing on the end of the chapter, a very lengthy discussion of what would befall them if they did not respect that authority, if they chose to disobey, if they chose to follow their own path. You and I can well see in, in the very character of the Old Testament, they did receive those blessings when they were faithful and respectful of God's authority, but it's also true they did experience all those punishments when they rebelled against his will. What does that say about those New Testament promises in which we read about? The promises to those who do respect God's authority and who do follow them. God will be just as true and sure to fulfill his promises for us today as he was then. If we respect his will, what a great blessing we will enjoy. But if we do not, what terrible perdition and punishment we bring upon ourselves. And if that isn't corrected, if we do not proceed to live in humility, 1 Peter 5, as well as James 5, verse 10, we will find ourselves sorely in a regretful position on the day of judgment. The burning of Abram's rod. Might we summarize our lesson tonight then by noting these comments. As we perhaps can put ourselves into the position of a general person amongst ancient Israel, and to be there when Moses came out of that tabernacle and showed us which rod had budded, may we then remember that that was a testimony to Israel then and as a lesson in principle for us now that authority is very important and that those who rebel against God's established authority will be punished. And furthermore, that each of us have a sphere in which we labor in pursuit of the Master today. And never must we go beyond it. And oh, what great blessings God has in store for those who do respect His authority and who prescribe their life within the boundaries of what God has stated. The budding of Aaron's rod. Tonight, might we realize then that that budding of that rod so long ago stood as a testimony for centuries and centuries in the sense it was placed in that Ark of the Covenant. Each year when the high priest would go in there and as records were passed from one generation to the next, the brethren, the people knew what was in that. What did it state about respect for authority? It stated what you and I must learn in the New Testament to never go beyond what has been written. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. To never go beyond and transgress. 2 John verses 9 and 10. Tonight, what about your life and mine? Do you and I subscribe to the authority of heaven? Do we find ourselves bounded by the revelation and learn that principle and lesson due to the budding of Aaron's rod? Tonight, no matter what the world may tell us, no matter what men and women, perhaps in all sincerity, may think they can say, they can never usurp authority over God. His will is absolute and we must obey it fully and completely. That means we need to be a Christian. 
Aren't you a Christian? Are you born again? Jesus told Nicodemus, except you be born of water and of the Spirit, ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's as plain a statement as we could find anywhere. Have you been born again? Jesus says you must believe upon him. You must repent of the sins in your life since they have separated you from him. You furthermore need to confess his great name as the Savior of your life, as the Son of God. And finally, you need to be buried in water, baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 22.16. If you have not done that, let tonight be the night. Everything is ready. Everything's prepared. We could be of assistance to you. If you have become a Christian and have walked the blessed pathway toward heaven, but you've become detoured, you've allowed sin too large a role to play in your life, and you've brought public reproach upon the name of Christ and on His body, the church, understand that He wants you to come home. He wants you so desperately to make a courageous statement of the necessity of repentance of those things and to ask for prayers on behalf of forgiving them. We could also do that with you tonight. If any of these things is a need of your life, let the budding of Aaron's rod challenge you to be respectful for God's authority and submit to it always. If you need to come in a public way, let that be done tonight while together we stand and while we sing.